the antidote of, of addiction is connection. And I certainly uh, got the, the motivation to, to start a, or to try and start a Birds of Feather group through my understanding of a, a Doctors in Recovery group, which runs in, in Sydney uh, and has been running for a number of years. Yeah, there's nothing better than, than seeing, you know, people getting their jobs back, getting their lives back and just talking to somebody about what may or may not be a problem with addiction is not the end of your career. You know, that it, it may be actually the start of the, the best part of your life. You're listening to Flying Straight, an aviator's guide to navigating through a life of sobriety. People in the flying industry and other walks of life will share their experiences of living a life free of alcohol and other drugs. You will also hear from experts in the world of addiction and self-improvement. Join Andrew O'Mealy, airline pilot and non-practicing alcoholic, as he takes you on a journey, discovering how a sober life can lead to a deeper level of happiness. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Flying Straight, Piloting a Sober Life. My name is Andrew O'Mealy, airline pilot, alcoholic and your host, talking to you from the Sunshine Coast, or the Sunny Coast as us locals call it here, in Queensland, Australia. It's certainly nice to be here at the moment as we approach the tail end of summer. And if you're into outdoors, especially surfing, This is a great place to be. And speaking of surfing, my guest today is Dr. Mike Atherton. Now, besides being a keen surfer, Mike is a psychiatrist, addiction specialist, and has been awarded a fellowship of the Australasian Chapter of Addiction Medicine, a FATCHM. Mike has also spent time in the US gaining a qualification as a HIMSS Federal Aviation Administration Certified Addiction Specialist. And he's one of the only ones in this part of the world with that qualification. He's one of the founding members of HIMS in Australia. And when he's not practicing as a psychiatrist, you might find it hard press finding him as he often travels to secret places all over the globe looking for that perfect wave. His involvement in the aviation industry as a psychiatrist has contributed to many Australian pilots getting back in the air and living a better life. Hey Mike, thanks for taking time to talk with us here today. It's it's really good to to have you here. Now I understand that you may not know that I know this, but you're a pretty good guitar player and you're also a keen gardener. But the thing that particularly caught my attention is that you're a bit in a, of an adventurer. So you've been up to New Guinea, surfing in remote areas there, and in fact, I remember once. Uh, we couldn't catch up, I think it was for a birds meeting, because you damaged your knee while you were surfing. What happened there? Yeah, I uh, tore my cartilage on the second day of surfing in uh, Vanamo in northern Papua New Guinea, up near the Indonesian border. And, um, yeah, that was uh, – well, luckily I was um, still able to surf, although it got worse and worse through the week. Um, there was a part of me that thought maybe I should have stopped and – Flying home, but um, but you know uh, when you only get away every every year or so, then um, I, I I just sort of carried on and took it easy, and it, it sort of held up for the week, um, and uh, eventually I had to have surgery on it, um, and it's back back okay now. But um, yeah, oh, well, no, good. one of the guys fractured a couple of vertebrae when we were out there. He got airlifted out, so that wasn't particularly good. But, um, yeah, it was pretty rudimentary uh, medical services up there. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, um, what were you doing up there? Oh, just just surfing. Um, we we have a, a group of doctors that we go away with intermittently. We um, that it was surfing, and then every afternoon a, a, a group of the doctors would go into the town of Anamo and, and meet up with the, the local medical service and um, provide some support services, education, um, procedures, policy sort of stuff. Um, right. Yeah. And is that something you do regularly? It's a voluntary thing, I take it. And... That side of things is voluntary. I mean, it, it's sort of mixing the 
the, the wonderful and the beautiful with with a bit of kind of um, education and stuff. They, they, so they, the group I work with is has set um, a number of different uh, kind of facilities up. One in the Maldives, uh, another in Nias in um, Indonesia, and there's hope to establish this one in Vanamo where we provide, I suppose. Uh, again, education and then restocking and, and kind of a bare emergency sort of equipment, emergency room, providing them defibrillators, those sort of things. So just, we run a small conference, you know, educational conference type thing and it's part of the, the process. Um, and, but there is, you know, a, a, an aside which runs the, which then, you know, through the proceeds of the conference, everything we then, uh, provide sort of some of this medical equipment and, and expertise to these um, or to these small remote, I suppose, communities. The one in Maldives is extremely well established. Nias is pretty well established, and there's a few groups. Uh, you can do a, a sort of three month or a six month or a, or a shorter sort of stint on the island if you wish to provide medical services and. Um, some great waves out the front as well. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, depend depends what the surf would be like. How long you stay there? For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's pretty good stuff that goes on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So, you've always been interested in becoming a psychiatrist, or, or what drove you towards that uh, specialty? Oh no, I, I mean, I started medicine. I wasn't really. I came into medicine quite late in my decision-making, I uh, sort of decided relatively late that it was a good, seemed like a good career opportunity. And then I um, I was a bit disillusioned during medical training, it was a, uh, but eventually came out and um, was doing emergency work, emergency training. And then um, in order to do that, I had to do either medical, surgical or, or anaesthetics, uh, but that, was really not very enjoyable when I started the training and I ended up in a psychiatric job as part of a GP training uh, program, but I just absolutely loved the psychiatry uh, rotation I did. Um, and so I just stayed on in, in psychiatry, worked in the UK in London for a few years and then uh, a friend offered me a job or told me about a job in Sydney and um, at that time, my sort of life circumstances were ideally suited uh, to sort of um, travelling over. And, and so I came over to Sydney and uh, very soon kind of met my future wife and uh, sort of and then stayed here in Sydney uh, training. I had to go back to the UK to finish off some of the training there. Um, but um, yeah, basically established myself in Sydney as a psychiatrist, and um, yeah, love every minute of it. Yeah, great. So you you spend most of your time practicing out of the Sydney clinic at Bronte. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I, I was working at St Vincent's in Sydney for many years. I ran the keep ward there, and then the homeless health service. Yeah, right. Oh, you you busy guy. Yeah, everyone's in psychiatry is busy. I think. Um, it's uh it can be yeah i think it, it, it it's an op it's a job that you can have a, a work-life balance but certainly there's a huge need for psychiatry and drug and alcohol support you know yeah right when you say you didn't get into it straight away how old were you when you you started the the path uh to to where you are now well i think it was the decision for medicine was just the last minute of putting in my application for university. I just knew I needed. I just knew I wanted to go to university. I wasn't really sure what um, I was going to do. I, de I deferred the offer for a year. I worked at a, um, a canned pie factory uh, for about seven or eight months, and then went travelling around the world for seven or eight months. Um, uh, before starting my uni, which was, again, a, an amazing experience, you know. Yeah, great. I guess working in that camp pie factory would have contributed to you being a vegan these days as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, some, some of the things I've seen, uh, you know, I did, you know, not to be re repeated. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, harrowing experience, although at that stage I was, you know, you know, completely oblivious to that sort of stuff. And uh ate the canned pies in, in large quantities whenever I could. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, okay, that, that that all makes sense now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as you as that path of becoming a psychiatrist that obviously took a long time, what was it, over 10 years? It was for me because I, I had to go back to the UK uh, to get certain qualifications there to ensure that I could then continue properly training in, this, in Australia. So, yeah, then on top of that, I suppose there's been additional qualification, you know, the additional training in in uh, addiction psychiatry, which is another two years, and then the faction, which is the Medical College of Physicians addiction training, wow. which is another two years. So, yeah, it does matter. Yeah. So it, it's a radically different pathway, a psychiatrist to a psychologist. And I think most people are aware of that, but they don't really know what the difference in the roles are. I, I guess the desired outcomes are fairly similar, but the, the process is different. Can you just quickly tell us what the differences are there? Psychiatrists, I suppose, can prescribe medication and um, the you know, that forms a bulk of what, what do we do, whereas the psychologist, I suppose, is, is very much more in, in t terms of, um, you know, talking therapy, uh, group therapy, those sorts of things. Uh, there's a there's a guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, Osher Ginsberg. He's a, uh, well, he's, you may not have heard of him. He's a, he's written an autobiography. He's a television presenter and he's an author. He's probably best known for, his role as the presenter of The Bachelor. So maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, I don't know. But uh, oh, his okay. book I read is, is quite good. The, the reason I bring it up is he shares an analogy. Well, he's quite he's very candid with the support that he's had a lot of, uh, quite a number of mental health and addiction issues throughout his life. And so he's he's quite an insightful guy and he talks about the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist and I kind of like it but I don't know if this will resonate with you he he says that he or he uses the analogy of rally driving and he says the psychiatrist is like being the mechanic making sure everything's firing properly and the psychologist is like being the navigator calling out the corners as you hurtle through the forest yeah, I think that's probably probably right. I mean, I, th I think it's funny, you know, different people have different ways of working. I mean, I like to work with psychologists. Um, I think that comes a bit from from sort of working for a long period of time in in a very much team based uh, uh, system in in public hospitals. Um, for, for a lot of psychiatrists, they you know they prefer to work you know on their own and in isolation a bit which um but certainly that analogy i think works but you know when you're working in in unison with a psychologist and you know you're um and and you you know you've got a shared goal and and you're talking to each other and um you know you're um you're trying to provide this you know the the, the platform i suppose as a psychiatrist that the psychologist can then you know take that person on and and, and mold them into what you know what what that person wishes to be and, and they, you know achieve their goals and um, self-esteem improvements whatever it may be so yes yeah, it's, it's a good analogy I like it oh good so some of the concepts of addiction have, have been around for a long time and I remember hearing a story about Bill Wilson and Bill's one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and he was having a conversation when he was in hospital suffering from alcoholism with a, a doctor called uh or was dr silkworth and he explained Aye. to yeah he, he explained to bill that it's not a question of willpower or moral character and he says it's a peculiar illness of the body and mind the body of an alcoholic reacts differently to that of others it produces an actual physical craving and also develop an obsession of the mind an idea so strong It'll make you believe in a lie, something that is just not true, and the mind tells you that it's okay to drink. So alcoholism's they're saying is being a disease of both a physical and mental nature. And I know that's a pretty basic explanation of addiction, but I think it's not too bad considering that th that conversation took place nearly 100 years ago, that addiction is in fact a, 
a complex topic, but no pressure here, Mike. Is it uh, possible for you to give us an explanation of the nature of addiction? Yeah, look, I, well, I think that's a fairly good description, as you said, but I, th I think the, you know, you are right. The, the brain or the mind, uh, I suppose, of, a, of an addict is, has been changed. You know, it's not it's not the brain of a of a normal person uh, who doesn't have addiction. It's not the brain of somebody. You know, uh, the brain of that person may have been different. You know, in their childhood, for example. But but through the process of somebody developing an addiction, there is an, uh, there are changes that take place on a on a neurological level. We sometimes describe that as you know, neuroadaptation, um, or we can describe it as, you know, in more layman's terms, sometimes the term's hijacked, you know, where there's a, you know, your brain seems to be hijacked by this, you know, you know this, this external process, which suddenly means that you operate differently uh, in the context of substances to how you perhaps used to. Um, and that neuroadaptation uh, really takes place uh, when, you know, people are, exposed to substances over a significant period of time you know for different people that period of time can be different uh, some people it's very quick you know it can almost be the first or second hit of, of some substances like heroin or methamphetamine but for other people it takes you know long periods of time you know sometimes uh, you know decades for, for for that adaptation to take hold properly and you often see that in with alcohol for example where many people don't present until they're sort of you know 30s or 40s or even later and um, the the changes that occur really um, are a adaptation of their reward system and their um, and their motivation system which basically means that they they no longer I suppose respond uh, to the more uh, natural and um, you know uh, evolutionary kind of reward mechanisms that it's been their reward system is is uh, hijacked or to only respond to those um, substances which they become addicted and um, and when those substances are in deficit when they're you know they're not available or they're in short supply the people experience overwhelming cravings and urges to to re-engage uh, with those um, to, and, and that's what we sometimes call withdrawal, for example, would cause that, but it's also caused by, you know, certain cues in their environment or, or um, you know, just being exposed to those, those drugs. They can develop these overwhelming urges and overwhelming craving to um, consume these substances. So that, uh, that craving or wanting is often greater than the the reward of actually taking the drug itself yeah well i mean these unfortunately these cravings and urges you know are not based necessarily in reality um and there can be a distorting of the person's reality to the fact that you know they uh they no longer well they the, the, the reality is distorted to the point where they no longer perceive the negative outcomes of using substances um, and they only perceive this kind of overwhelming positive reward which again is not based in reality and and uh, when the the drug is consumed uh, often you know people can can find themselves you know being quite uh, despondent and dysphoric in actual fact relatively quickly uh, but the negative consequences of that that consumption are real and i think that the, the main thing that, that we find is that you know the more people have urges and more cravings they have the less regard they have for the negative consequences of that of that occurring um, in intoxication and they can take ever increasing risks uh, they can take um ever in, in, in uh, more dangerous kind of decisions and that can lead them into really dark and, and dangerous sort of places um, which builds you know shame and guilt and and all of these other emotions that often are, are a cue back into to taking those substances again in the future right okay so you did mention that it's often a, a function of exposure to that 
substance. But I guess there's a genetic component. I, you know, I heard a story that you know, during the Vietnam War there was a a fairly significant percentage of uh, soldiers, U.S. soldiers, that used heroin. And then there was this big fear that when they came back into society, back onto into mainland U.S., that there'd be this epidemic of heroin addicts. But apparently that wasn't the case. So some were really affected, of course. There were a percentage that were addicted, but there were some that once they got back to the U.S., they just put it down and and didn't touch it again. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a number of con- uh, sort of concepts around that. I think that's that's true. You know, there there are significant uh, genetic and and also environmental factors which pr- can predict or um, the onset of, of substance use disorder. Uh, the presence of trauma is is always talked about, and and people who have traumatic childhoods. Um, for whatever reason, I mean, probably to do with high levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone uh, being present in, in their early developmental sort of time, there is changes to their brain which can occur, and especially the dopamine reward system, I mean, it's, it's much more sensitive to the influence of substances, and it just seems to be that they have a much more uh, a much more powerful response to, to substances and therefore develop addiction more easily. Uh, genetic factors are also important. We know that there are certain uh, genetic or, uh, codes or genes that, that um, predict onset of, of, of other substance use disorders. And you'll often find it, you know, as, as I think you've experienced in your own in life, that there is a family history uh, often of addiction in, in people who develop addiction themselves. And there is a risk that, that you know, that, that addiction can be passed down in, in some regards. The the combination of these factors is also important. So you can get, you know, a, 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 a load from the environmental factor, a load from the genetic factor. And, and some of these things can combine in the case of things like cannabis, trauma and um the um, and genetic uh, codes can increase the chances of a, of a cannabis use disorder, you know, up to sort of ten or twelve fold in some individuals. The there are also mental health conditions, um, ADHD, um, antisocial personality disorder, bipolar disorder. These are all uh, conditions which, you know, for whatever reason, uh, predict higher rates of, of substance use disorder, and so. Um, now, when you're investigating causality and, and what have you, you want to be sort of looking for, for these other possible um, conditions, but also, um, you know, exploring the presence of trauma and those sorts of things. They're going to be very important in providing the, the, the most appropriate treatment to those individuals. All right. Okay. So, Mike, you've trained in the US through the organisation Hims. And just for listeners who haven't had a chance to download the previous episodes, HIMS is a supportive monitoring program for commercial pilots and they're pilots with substance use disorders. It's not a it's a not for profit that facilitates getting pilots back in the air safely after they lose their aviation medical certificates because of that alcohol and other drug use. So through that training, you became a US HIMS certified addiction psychiatrist. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to get into the aviation side? Yeah, well, um, I, I after training as a psychiatrist, I, I worked uh, in a, inner city Sydney and, and a lot of drug and alcohol problems. So I, I, I did extra training in that and, and, and found that it was something I really enjoyed and when I went into private practice, I started working with a couple of uh, the airlines in Australia just by chance and, you know, developed, I suppose, some knowledge about uh, the kind of uh, issues that they faced and, and just happened to be uh, involved with the early development of the Australian Hymns program with um, the likes of Laurie Shaw and um, it it really sort of was such an interesting time um, as we started to, to learn more and more about, you know, first of all, the, the program of HIMSS, which is so incredibly successful 
in its ability to, you know, manage addiction and 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 and, and turn around people's lives, but also, um, you know, it's a safety tool within within aviation in terms of um, uh, keeping people's jobs, but also, um, you know, keeping the skies kind of safe. So. Uh, myself and Laurie um, and a few of the other guys, Matt O'Keefe and uh, those sorts of people that got together with, with the unions and um, we uh, we sort of fleshed out this, this HIMSS program and obviously as part of that we were being driven very much by the US model which has been going for so long and so successfully. So um, I did a... Uh, a bit of spent a little bit of time in Atlanta at the Talbot Recovery Center with uh, Dr. Beatty, who um, some people may know from some of the, the videos and things, and some of the information on the on the Hims website, especially the US Hims program, and um, attended the advanced um, Hims training program in uh, Washington DC. And then I returned a year or so later to do the, the training program in Denver. Um, and it's very useful to be involved in and to, to, to get the literature and the information that's coming from the US because it, it is a world leader in this regard. And, um, and also to, to sort of network with those individuals involved in the whole HIMSS program, both in the US and worldwide. And, um, you know, that's led on to me uh, authoring a chapter on addiction in one of the publications from Robert Bohr, who's a clinical psychologist based in the UK and works with the, um, the UK uh, Civil Aviation Agency on addiction in aviation and also how to assess and treat that. And... Um, I think one of my roles as an addiction psychiatrist uh, within the Australian hymns is really to make sure that we don't stray too far clinically uh, from what the American system uh, provides in order to try and meet a kind of local market, so to speak. I mean, we have to stay true to what is the clinical provisions of good quality care and good quality you know, procedures which the US runs. Um, and we have to have an, an eye on what, what we need to provide to fit into the Australian system. But, you, you know, you don't want to go too far from that, I think, otherwise you lose some of the efficacy of that amazing program. Yeah, it, it is an amazing program. I, I think so far, they've got over six now over 6,000 pilots back in the air again after they've lost their medical through substance use disorders, which is... Fantastic, and I think the the rate of the, the success rates in the ninety something percent range, which is just just sensational. That you would be one of the few addiction specialists in Australia that's undergoing that sort of training. I should imagine. I think I'm the only addiction specialist in the in this area of the world, really, who's got the FAA qualification. Obviously, COVID sort of come along, which, uh, but uh, I was providing support for a couple of pilots just in terms of being their addiction specialist, and that was, you know, who were based over here but had an FAA qualification. And, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I've also obviously had the pleasure of working quite a bit with CASA, uh, the Australian Civil Aviation Association, and, and that's been really good as well. So, I mean, I think definitely. You know, the more connected you can be, and the more you access and more information and knowledge you have in the different systems, um, the better able you are to to sort of to bring you know your knowledge into line with the, the, the specific, um, you know, the specifics of of aviation, which is which is such an interesting and and uh, an important industry. You know. Yeah, yeah, you're very significant in the in the influence of the Australian system. You're, as you said, you're one of the founding members of HIMS with Laurie Shaw, uh, which is just fantastic. And now we're looking at putting a, a training course together and you'll be a big part of that. And so there's the, the inf your influence continues there. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, 
kind words from you there, which is very nice. But I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me doing the training in the US was the presence of the FAA and the presence of those people uh, who were involved in the system um, at the training programs. You know, that they, they were training programs running for the addiction psychiatrists, for the for the monitors. Uh, everyone was in this all together. And the people that were running these programs and the people that you could bump into and have a chat with, you know, in the coffee break were the FAA, the people who signed people off, the people who signed people on. And it was just a very, you know, uh, supportive network of people. And I think it's super important that, you know, people have the opportunity to meet face to face and, and to talk and to see that, you know, we're all on the same side here, you know. So I'm, I'm really proud and I'm really um, grateful to being able to be a part of the training program for the peers. And and hopefully with time, you know, we can develop more uh, people of it with interests in aviation within the addiction psychiatry, um, you know, uh, network. There are certainly people around Australia who are developing an interest, I think. And so that's really no, that's, beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. So uh, this training course, incidentally, it's, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have it out the back of Byron Bay, Mullumbimby, it's called, and uh, the accommodation's pretty cool. It's actually intense. So I'm really hoping that doesn't rain, but it'll, I think it's going to be something pretty special, and I'm really looking forward to that. You were talking about going over to Atlanta and having a look at that Talbot Recovery Centre. I've, I've had a look at that too, and it, it's pretty impressive. You know, a hundred uh, pilots and doctors and uh, other professionals all sort of housed together, and um, a lot of people in recovery involved in the training and the and the uh, therapy sessions. Um, super impressive. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I I went and had a look at it, and uh, Doc Beatty, who you spoke about, took me on a tour around it, and then he kindly took me out for dinner that night. And yeah. in Atlanta, and it was it was really nice. And he was saying that, yeah, their main clientele are doctors, physicians, and attorneys. <laughs> and and I know actually that sounds like a, a lead into a joke, you know, a, a doctor, yeah. pilot, and attorney went into a bar, but hopefully they <laughs> hopefully they're not going into a bar; they're going into the rehab. But he, he was saying um, the in order, he said pilots and physicians have this sort of higher uh higher than sort of average right they're rated higher than average on the narcissism scale and uh, he said for me that initially that sounded like a bad thing but he said no it's a good thing because it helps us to perform certain functions in those those jobs he said when when the pilots come in often they say oh look you don't understand i'm I'm a pilot, you know, and I think what they're saying is, you know, there's that unique uh, uniqueness of the job as far as travel and, and the job itself and so on. He says sometimes he has to sit them down and say, look, I know you're a pilot, but you're just like everyone else that's had that suffers from a substance use disorder. And he said once they understand that, they can get on with the program, and that's that's fine. But he incidentally said the attorneys are a, a little bit more complicated because he said they're always trying to find a loophole <laughs> in the system. So, but yeah, he's he's a he's a super nice guy. Um, he is a lovely guy. I've I've met him on a number of occasions, and uh, he's helped and supported me with information and uh, advice over the years. But yeah, you are right that. Um, physicians and, and, and pilots are really a mixture of narcissism, obsessionality and histrionic personality traits in that the, the narcissism allows them to sort of do, um, you know, make decisions uh, when, you know, they, they need to be firm and clear about uh, things and, and to back themselves in difficult uh, situations. They need to be obsessional, obviously, to complete all the training and to, you know, to be safe in the job and to make sure that they check and recheck and have, don't make mistakes. And they, they, the histrionic side is, you know, the, where they get the, you know, that they, they love to be the centre of attention and they love the, uh, the kind of the admiration of their colleagues as, as often as possible. But um, 
you know, and these, uh, but these, you know, these things sort of marry together to, um, to provide a, 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 hopefully an extremely safe, confident, uh, good communicating and uh, meticulous kind of clinician or, or aviator. But uh, sometimes those qualities can also be very good at, at, at sort of um, covering up or masking a, uh, an underlying addiction, unfortunately. All right. So uh, by the time a pilot gets into an airline, they've, they've, they've been pretty well screened. They've gone through you know, simulator tests. They've had a medical and they've been drug screened. They've had psychometric testing, panel interviews. They're, they've really been taken through the ringer in, in, a, in some respects. And I guess uh, you would think that the incidence of a of substance use disorder in that through that screening and in that environment of constantly being checked and trained would be pretty rare, but they do appear, and that sometimes happens when people stick their hand up or they're identified through a a drug test. So if they if they come through either of those places. Well, say, for example, if they fail a drug test, it doesn't necessarily mean that they do have a substance use disorder. However, I guess when it gets to that stage, they have to, that they really have a requirement to be assessed. And and you're the guy that would be one of those initial, uh, the, the, the first phone call would be to you, either from... The person who stuck their hand up, or I guess from the the airline uh, doctor, may call you. And so, just wondering what once you receive that phone call, what's the process there? Once that that referral process has come in, we try and see these particular people as as quickly as possible. And I uh, personally have, have sort of spaces available to fit them in. So, it's getting to see these people as quickly as possible, I think, is super important just because it's such a distressing time for them. Uh, and also, you want to strike why the iron's hot, you know, uh, really, and, 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 and get them uh, in front of you for an interview and a discussion as soon as possible. So, it's really about making sure there's a referral in place, uh, getting them into an appointment. And um, and in some cases, uh, they will be required to undertake or they'll be advised to undertake some blood tests or some urine tests, etc. prior to seeing me. But, but in often case, they, those are requested at the time of the appointment. Um, and the sort of thing, so the interview would, would take place. Normally, I see people for about 90 minutes. Um, the... Uh, we do some screening tests with questionnaires just about their mental health and also about their substance use. Um, we like to get collateral information, uh, ideally from a family member or long-standing GP or DAMI. As a psychiatrist in this kind of role or a faction, uh, a fellow of the uh, Australasian chapter of addiction medicine, a, a medicine uh, addiction specialist, you're really wanting to to make the best assessment as possible as to whether this person has an underlying substance use disorder, first of all, uh, and if so, what is it and, and, and how severe is it? But also then to be able to determine those kind of more aviation-specific questions, for example, does the person have um, problematic use of substances as defined by CASA you know, regulations part 67? Um, and you know, this question about whether that is safety relevant, I suppose, comes into all of that. So the more information you can get from collateral information, the time you're sitting and interviewing the person and, you know, any biomarkers that you might organise, which might be a, a blood test, a urine test or a hair test, for example, you're then going to be able to give the best, you know, advice that you can. Right, OK. Oh, thanks for explaining that. I'm sure there's a lot of fear out there because it's a... A really scary time for pilots all of a sudden life's been going on reasonably well there's probably been a few things leading up to it but they've been sort of loosely keeping it together and then all of a sudden they're at Sydney Clinic at Bronte in the waiting room waiting for you so I think if they hear what you've just said there I think there's a lot of that fear will be allayed which is just fantastic thanks very much for that now um 
No interview at the moment would be complete without mentioning the C word. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. So, so COVID, the current COVID situation, and uh, an outcome of that is, of course, many pilots being out of work. So for some pilots around the world, and they may not be flying for some time, and if we just look at the Australian international scene, uh, pilots on the 380 have been told that they won't be back until... 2023 and sometimes they say it won't be back until 2023 at least so there's reports in the broader community at least that there's large numbers of the population that have changed their drinking patterns and in some cases they've been increasing consumption i'm just wondering if you've noticed any of that yeah i mean it's a, it's a slightly tricky one and i, I i'm not i'd say entirely around this in that there's been a massive increase obviously in, in takeaway alcohol sales but then of course there's been a massive reduction in in the alcohol consumption in you know in, in public houses and and and, and, and clubs etc but certainly the the anecdotal and, and the early evidence is there's been an increase in in alcohol use and, and in substance use i think and um the and then pilots are going to be no different to that i think the the also, you know, the, we talk about stress, you know, we talk about uh, uh, cues, you know, well, uh, there can be no greater stress than really the, to, to, you know, losing a job or, or being stood down for long periods. I mean, we've, we've all heard the stories of, you know, uh, uh, 83, 80 captains sort of stacking shelves of coals and, um, you know, or driving combine harvesters and, you know, sort of things. And, um, yeah, it's a super stressful time, and, and stress is one of the biggest drivers into increasing alcohol consumption. Um, the the uncertainty that that provides, and also the just the amount of time and, and downtime. I mean, you know, pilots are used to operating on these these rotating rosters, and and um, you know, those could be quite tight turnarounds often in the in the modern sort of day. So. Um, this is a huge amount of time on their hands, uncertainty, stress around finances. So it is a really difficult time. But certainly in every patient that I've seen, uh, that is a factor at some level, uh, whether it be, um, and it's a factor both in, in their presentation, but it's also a factor in their treatment um, because, you know, one of the great benefits of HIMS over the more traditional method of approving one's um, uh, suitability to return to flying is the speed with which people can get back to their profession. I mean, in the under the old system, if you were felt to have a problematic use of substances, you, you could be two years uh, on the ground before you were able to convince CASA that you were somebody who was reasonable to recertify. But with the HIMSS program, uh, if a person is you know fully compliant with their HIMSS contract and monitoring, uh, they could be back flying within six months. So this is a huge kind of, um, you know, incentive for people to put their hand up early or to, you know, to to accept uh, what uh, the, the doctors are telling them, etc. But you've got a system now where, you know, people are not looking at getting back to flying for quite some time. And so, um, you know, there there is a potential hindrance for them to, you know, to be a, as receptive around him. I mean, that said, I haven't experienced that. I, I've, everyone I've seen has still been wanting to get their medical back uh, as soon as possible and willing to commit. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm finding as a narcissistic alcoholic pilot that um, there is that uniqueness at the moment. And, uh, you know, I'm finding that there is... Uh, the, the initial shock when COVID first happened, there was that almost panic, you know, what's going to happen now? But then when I realised that the world's going to keep turning and I wake up in the morning and, and everything's okay, between you and me and who el whoever else is listening, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite enjoying a lot of aspects of of not going to work. But having said that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty productive with what I do uh, because you know, one of the consequence one of the consequences of of not drinking for a number of years. But there are guys out there, as you say, they've got more time. Guys and girls, they've got more time on their hands. Uh, there's also that financial stress and so on. But one of the factors that's in there is I haven't been into the simulator for months and months, 
and I haven't had to commute from the Sunshine Coast down to Sydney, get up at three in the morning for nearly a year. I've been sleeping in my own bed and all that sort of stuff. But the consequence of not having to turn up for a duty or not having to study for a simulator and so on, I'm just wondering if there's pilots out there that, and, and I think this may be the case, that because there's not that accountability, they may be drinking a little bit more without that constraint there. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's different. I mean, we talked about those um, those different uh, personality traits earlier, and um, you know, and, and, and everybody is different. Though, I mean, there are there are commonalities and there are differences in our personalities. And I think that um, uh, you know, for for some people, can you know, for one man's trash is another's treasure. You know, that some people are, are loving this time. You know, they're, they're becoming the most productive they've ever been. They've been time to, you know, they've never had to engage in some of their interests. I've, I've seen guys who are sort of you know playing the money markets of, of the world. Um, I've seen the people who are, you know, building their homes, their dream homes, and, um, you know, and people have, have taken up, you know, sort of uh, poetry and all sorts of things. But, you know, for other people, it's a, uh, it's a really difficult time. Then, as you say, the accountability where they were constantly being monitored, constantly being, were needing to perform, and um, the accountability is an extremely important a factor in in aviation, and it's extremely you know uh, well demonstrated by by the HIMSS program, which is to say that you know the accountability is is that you have you know you have to do these things in order to get back to being you know to be able to fly again, and if you don't do them, then you won't be able to fly. So we're going to be you have to be really really accountable to your HIMSS contract. So when you don't have accountability, just the day to day sort of accountability of your job, um, a lot of people. You know, could certainly see that as a, or that can be a real trigger into increasing some of your unhelpful coping strategies like alcohol. Yeah, because before COVID, uh, there were pilots being identified through drug testing. And I must say, I almost, I don't know if it'd be the majority, but quite a, quite a significant amount were self-identifying. Since COVID we're looking after the the ones that were really in the system before before the whole shutdown of the industry but there's not really any new uh, people coming in so I, I guess one of my concerns is with this these dynamics of that lack of accountability and the people aren't identifying or or or, or being uh, identified that maybe there's a, a bit of a, a condition bubbling away that supposing if all of a sudden you know the vaccine works and everything's great in a perfect world and we get back to work a lot quicker than we anticipate that some of these people might be caught unaware and there might we might have to go through a bit of a reactive stance because there'll be people coming to work and after they've modified their or changed their lifestyles through this lockdown or this stand down yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, I mean, if if you do have an emerging substance use disorder within, you know, and especially pilots and, and doctors, as I said, we're very good at, at masking that and very good at organising our lives so it doesn't interfere with our job. You know, so we can be, you know, meticulous about how often we drink, when we drink, you know, and how many days we allow ourselves to be sober before we return back to work. And so, you know, but when all of those accountability requirements are relaxed, often there can be an escalation in the substitution. And it's very hard to pull it back once it's, you've got it's got away from you and I think you know you may find that we may find indeed that you know as people start to get back and they're having to be sort of shoehorned back into that accountable structure of their work um, that you find um, that, that there are uh, people who are either putting their hand up or being being found to be unable to bring it back under control uh, because the, you know the core feature of addiction of course is that lack of ability to control your substance use disorder and um so that might be the case i mean um it's certainly i think um the case you know that with the sort of you know the rapid 
turning or turn around and the, and the stress of flying you know there's no doubt that it is a very you know it's a stressful very rewarding i understand but very stressful job and and so that in itself you know creates um you know some of the 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 the, the sort of fertile ground for these addiction issues to to sort of develop and, and present but um yeah we may well find as that stress is re-implemented that people really struggle you know now the first time we met, I think, was at a, a HIMSS conference, but I, I don't know if we had a conversation there. But the first time I re- can recall meeting is when you put up the idea of establishing the Birds of a Feather group in Australia. So Birds of a Feather, it's a an international support group with a modelled on the AA template, but it's, it's really Alcoholics Anonymous for flight crew. And so you approached me I think it was in 2019 and we you offered some space in the Sydney clinic at Bronte and a handful of us got together and that's just been such a a fantastic initiative on your part and so it started off as I say with just a small handful uh, with a handful and it's grown in numbers and actually the transition to Zoom due to the whole social distancing thing has actually worked in its its favour and so we've developed this Australian flavour now which is is really cool uh, it's just it just morphed into into something and, and it's a really close group of people and there's a whole lot of honesty there vulnerability and we're just really telling it how it is and, and, talk, and sharing our experiences and that that development of connection I'm finding is is one of the the significant or one of the most important elements of the group. So do you see that element of connection as something that, that's vital in the recovery process? Oh, it's, I think it's fundamental. You know, there are, there are many people who describe the, uh, you know, I've heard this a lot, and, you know, the antidote of, of addiction is connection, you know, and, um, and I certainly uh, got the... Um, the, the motivation to, to start a, or to try and start a birds of a feather group through uh, my understanding of a, a doctors in recovery group which runs in, in Sydney uh, and has been running for a number of years. A colleague of mine who's an addiction specialist who's in recovery himself has been running that for many years, Stephen Jurd, Professor Jurd, and just a really, really important place for doctors to be able to go and be honest and find support. Um, because, you know, it's been hard turning up at your local AA uh, if you're a doctor and uh, seeing some of your patients there, uh, there or being worried that your patients might see you there. And um, and also some of the, the digressions that are made in addiction are, you know, can be quite confronting to the average person and uh, it'd be difficult to talk about that, be honest within your addiction. So that was a really important group there and, and I was... When I went to the US for the hymns training and, and hymns groups there, and there were birds for feather groups running regularly, and they were really uh, impressive. I, I spoke to a number of people and just found overwhelming support for those and being such a powerful part of the, the, the pilots uh, with uh, experience. And I found that you know for many people it was it was being part of that group that really brought the awareness and the insight into their condition uh, to the fore, even. You know, even after they've been told they had addiction, they lost their license, they were in a hymns uh, contract or, or what have you, they were still pushing back against that and trying to find ways that, that uh, maybe this didn't actually um, refer to them or it didn't wasn't actually, there'd been some mistake somewhere along the line. But, you know, the involvement of other pilots in recovery with, with positive stories and good relationships you know was really such an important thing so yeah i was incredibly indebted to yourself uh, we we tried to run a group for a short period for about a year and a half from the sydney clinic we had a a, a core group of people which and it, it it ran pretty well um for for a period of time but but it it just didn't have the sustainability of of being uh, run properly uh, by someone who had a long-term recovery uh, like yourself and so uh, you know meeting you and, and hearing your enthusiasm for that and and being able to to take up that um, was was really important and uh, yeah I mean I um 
uh, I'm really grateful to yourself, uh, Andrew, for, for taking on that idea because I think it's something that is so important within the community uh, as we go forward with this new concept. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think it's from what I, you know, 20 years ago when I first stopped, well, when I last stopped drinking, I gave it a few goes, but I, I, I went to AA a few times However, I had that fear. You, you were talking about, you know, your your friend who's who's organised the support group for doctors. I had this fear that I'd get found out that I was going to AA, and, and in a, for want of a better term, in a generic AA group. So I stopped going because I thought the company would find out that I didn't drink, and I'd get the sack. So that that's the fear. So I spent years and years of this isolation, and then when I heard about birds of a feather, I was just blown away. I thought, I wish I heard about this years and years ago. So it's it's just a, a it, for me, it's 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 something that I I really enjoy. And the whole Zoom thing now, there's people from all over the world. We can zoom into a you know somewhere a a, a meeting in Atlanta or. You know, over in the UK or whatever, it's it's really actually been a, a quite a benefit. Yeah, definitely. I think that's. Uh, I mean, uh, out of every uh, cloud has a silver lining, and I think that you know that's one of the things that people have actually realised, especially in this, where you've got you know niche groups like uh, like uh, like yours. You know, it's been really really important, and uh, you know, there, there's nothing in a way just that you can replace face to face but uh, but but for these sorts of groups it's just such an such a great development uh, so yeah it's, it's been good to hear that it's, it's flourishing yeah it is and having said that I'm, I'm really looking forward to having a a face-to-face meeting and probably when we do that training course in the mm. in the bush we'll probably end up organizing a, a birds of a feather group around the fire or something so i think that's that's going to be Pretty special indeed. I'll bring my marshmallows. Then. Very good. <laughs> no, that'd be good. Yeah. Now, your your field that is psychiatry and addiction is always looking for better ways of doing things. I assume there's still plenty of research into the science of addiction going on, and of course that'll continue forever. We'll never have all the answers, and evidence-based strategies are. I guess constantly refined, but I remember hearing a story about back to Bill Wilson, uh, the the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the other founder, Dr. Bob, and they were conducting experiments back then, and they <laughs> they, they had they, they had one therapy which was sauerkraut mixed with honey, and the the sauerkraut. It gave all the vitamins and and the honey made it palatable, and uh, occasionally, one of the the people that they were giving it to it would drop dead, <laughs> and probably from other reasons that they drank this elixir. And as the story goes, Bob turned to Bill and said, "Ah, oh, shit, we better not try that again." So they weren't exactly ticking all the boxes of an experimental design. However, I do like the story. I don't know if it's one hundred percent true, but it was you know this was a hundred years ago. But on the subject of research, have there been any recent developments in the area of addiction that that have caught your attention in recent times? You know, the area of addiction research is moving pretty fast. I mean, the the the, the area which has most fascinated me in recent times has been the development of really interest is developed in psychedelics and uh, the role of psychedelics potentially in in the future of psychiatry and the future of addiction medicine i mean i think there's probably a lot more hype uh, than perhaps there is uh sort of actual uh hard findings at the moment yeah the development of psychedelics i think is is absolutely fascinating i mean we already know that they have a role in, in the treatment of ptsd and trauma which you know we've already mentioned is a huge factor in the development of addiction but certainly there is you know interest in in uh using them in in terms of uh, detoxing patients but also um developing a sense of connection and hope and um spirituality 
I suppose, in a way that that is a cornerstone of, of, of many people's recovery from addiction. You know, that it's a sense that it's actually going to turn out all right. It's going to turn out all right in the end, and that you know I can keep going, and tomorrow might be a day that's worth living for, sort of thing. And um, and so. Um, you know, many people find spirituality through AA and other organisations and through their connections that they find. But, but um, for many people, they, for whatever reason, don't make that that leap into that sort of area. And so, um, I think that's is definitely going to be a very interesting area of development over the next sort of ten to fifteen years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now that is interesting. The, and talking about spirituality and so on, and the, you know, there's a. I guess the emerging mindfulness therapies as well and meditation and, and so on. I guess that's really important. But you you're talking about psychedelics. I, I often wonder when I hear, you know, podcasts with you know certain people talking about it and they're not really experts and so I'm glad I've heard that from you. That's great because you know, there's that a bit of a joke in support group circles that, you know, if they invented a pill that cured addiction what would happen if I took two? So <laughs> I just wonder if, you know, some people just, and myself included, enjoy the whole journey of sobriety with, I guess, that, that toughing it, toughening it out and doing it w- without, I guess, that sort of support. But as you say, everyone's different and some people may, that may be the only, what they consider the only answer available for them so it's very interesting on that note that's a very funny uh cartoon i think it's the you know the it plays on the um the matrix which is you know there's the blue pill and the red pill and then before you can say anything more the person's taken both of them you know <laughs> um the addict yeah. uh yeah. is uh you know i'll have both of those you know no point yeah. uh, choosing between the two so yeah 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 if someone's listening to you and they're questioning if they have a problem with alcohol and other drugs and they, they generally like to know uh, if they really do have a problem, what advice would you give them? One of the things, I mean, obviously within the aviation circle, be you know, a good thing to do would be um, to to have a look at the website of HIMSS, you know, and to explore uh, the Australian Hymns website, the American Hymns website, and just, you know, start to read some of the stories and start to, you know, read some of the 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 information there, watch some of the videos. Maybe, you know, it's going to be a good idea, you know, with the availability of these podcasts, maybe to have a little listen. I mean, there's some really fascinating and, and useful resources there. Um, the second thing I think is, is to talk to somebody. Um, you know, we hope... And certainly, you know, in the future and certainly after our HIMSS training uh, program that there will be more people, more visible people around who are going to be available to talk confidential, confidentially about, you know, the options available to people. Um, and they, that can be a hypothetical conversation. It can be anonymous conversations, you know, um, or reaching out to a medical professional, you know, talking to your doctor your GP about about the options or your daily but you know I think the most important message to, that we want to convey and we've always wanted to convey since the very start of this 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 journey with him is that you know just talking to somebody about your what may or may not be a problem with addiction is not the end of your career you know that it, it may be actually the start of the the best part of your life you know and um so it's okay to have conversations it's okay to talk and uh, there is information out there for you which hopefully will be reassuring for you know that, that there is a pathway uh, for you that it's not just all all or nothing you know yeah no you're right though as you say it could be the beginning of the best part of your life uh, and speaking of that uh one of the best parts of your life you got any more surfing adventures planned for the time when we can travel to the edges of the earth again well interestingly i was supposed to go down to the uh uh the dark recesses of victoria um <laughs> uh you know in about a month's time to the artificial wave down there but um, oh, nice. I decided yeah. not to book it in the end, based on the uh, unpredictability of, of the 
the border across. So, um, so that was uh, one thing. But yeah, no, I'm I'm always um, I'd love to go back to Papua New Guinea. Actually, I mean it was a fantastic place. And I was um, say that that that's a that's a little different to the wave pool in Victoria, isn't it? <laughs> <At> Bonimo. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, um, thanks very much for all these words of wisdom today. When your name's mentioned in the birds group, that the pilots that have been under your, your care often express you know, their gratitude, at how you've contributed to making their life a better one. And I'm convinced that it's not just because you're skilled at what you do and, and that you are, but it's because you have a real concern for these guys as individuals and I think one of the things that's really important is that you're really upfront and honest with these people and you know if it wasn't for you we wouldn't have formed these important connections and friendships made in that birds of a, a feather group and so you know, you're a lifesaver really and thanks also for all the significant contributions in the formation of, of hymns in Australia so uh, I hope we'll catch up face to face soon. Yeah, and thanks to you, Andrew, for all your support and help um, with with the, the hymns and uh, yeah, and just you know as a, as a personal friend and and um, being able to, to to assist with some of the guys that, that have come through as their monitor and, and what have you, because yeah, there's nothing better than, than seeing you know people getting their jobs back, getting their lives back, and um, unfortunately, in addiction, you know that can be uh, can be difficult for the average joe you know it's a rarity rather than uh, than a regular thing and, and i think so so to have a system like this in place where where there is so much hope i think it's uh, it's fantastic for me as an individual and a professional and it's also great for for those people who have problems so yeah thanks a lot for, for everything you've done as well uh, thanks mike thanks for your time it's been fantastic it's been really good to catch up well, I hope you enjoyed hearing Dr. Mike Atherton's story. His selflessness in supporting those with substance use disorders really shines through. If you'd like to contact Mike or anyone from OzHIMS, check out the website ozhims.org.au and for HIMS information in the US, their website is himsprogram.com and in New Zealand, HIMS. .org.nz and if you have any feedback I would love to hear that from you and my email is andrew at flyingstraight.com.au I look forward to sharing another story with you soon